You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and projects, and today is definitely no exception, as we got one of our favorites on here, Craig Keener, once again, Dr. Craig Keener, he is the, uh, <clears throat> he's the FM and ADA Thompson, Ada Thompson Professor of Biblical Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. He's author of 28 books, half of which he probably wrote while we were getting ready for this interview, 33 volumes, Six of which have won awards in Christianity Day plus other awards. He has also offered roughly 100 academic articles, seven booklets, and 150 popular level articles. His IVP Bible background commentary, New Testament, which provides cultural background on each passage of the New Testament, has sold more than half a million copies. He's New Testament editor of the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, which won the International Book Award for Christianity and Bible Review of the Christian Book Awards. In 2020, he's president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and he's married to Dr. Medine Musunga Keener. His blog site is www.craigkeener.com. Dr. Keener, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. It's, it's great to be with you, Nick. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, how would you get to be doing what you're doing? Uh, you could go to the blog site for, like, popular-level stuff. Mm. Um, but if... Um, if they want to know what I do, I just I love studying the Bible, mm-hmm. and so. Um, but when you study the Bible, because of the distance of culture and and time, you know it helps to know about the culture and time. So when you're reading it, if you're coming from a 21st century Western culture, mm-hmm. you want to. Um, well, it raises questions that you want answers for, and so. I try to go back to the first century and get those. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, before I was converted, I mean, I was converted like decades ago, but before I was converted, I, I, I was uh, I, I was an atheist, but I spent a lot of time studying the ancient Mediterranean world, mm-hmm. um, especially mm-hmm. Greek and Roman sources. Um, after I became a Christian and realized, you know, well, the Bible, I want to understand the Bible. That's when I started really digging into the Jewish sources and found a lot more uh, there, but uh, found all of it helpful. Mm-hmm. And we got a funny story when we had Edward Wright on the show that you did uh-huh. some work with. And I had to ask that, uh, Craig, you know, I always question about him. Do you ever see him sleep or anything like that? Because we, we have to wonder, and he talked about being on a 10-hour flight with you, and that mm-hmm. he fell asleep, and you were working your computer, he woke up. You were still working on your computer. <laughs> yeah. I usually don't sleep on planes. That's why I'm, I'm going to be doing less international. Well, I'm hoping to do less international travel because uh, 
I mean, it's it's all right if if the flight is is all day long, but if it's all night long, uh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's start talking about the book we're here to talk about today. Uh, first off, my wife and I were discussing about book, and she was asking, "Is it Christobiography or would it be Christobiography?" And how would you say that? I've been saying Christobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in Greek, it's it's uh, well, actually, <clears throat> mm-hmm. by the Erasmian pronunciation, in a way, it's Christos mm-hmm. uh, when we speak of Christ. Mm-hmm. So, of course, in Hebrew, it's Mashiach. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, what is the purpose behind writing Christobiography? Well, when I. <clears throat> I guess I can go back to. Something maybe, uh, maybe when I was a Bible college student, mm-hmm. um, there was uh, <clears throat> somebody who was saying, "Oh, what do I do? You know, the stuff in the compare one gospel with another. They're not in chronological order. You know, the the um, you know you compare the wording from one gospel to another. It's different." I'm like, "Well, that I mean, why is mm-hmm. that a problem? I mean, that's what you would expect in ancient mm-hmm. ancient writing. I mean." I before I was a Christian, I'd read Tacitus and some of Suetonius and other writers, and I didn't think that would be a problem in ancient sources. And he felt comforted by that, but <clears throat> I really didn't didn't understand what the problem was. There, there was a sense in which I, I would have when I first was converted, because when I first was converted to Christianity, and I was a math and science guy, I really liked mm-hmm. um, well more science, but I really liked. Um, reading Greco-Roman literature, uh, I had a predilection for that, but I, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. So I wasn't used to literature. I wasn't used to reading things, uh, written documents, understanding the different styles of different authors and so on um, so much. And so when I, when I first came to, you know, I read Matthew, and that mm-hmm. was great. And then I read Mark. And at the end of Mark, he got crucified again. And I'm like, whoa, how often is this going to happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was so, so unfamiliar. But, you know, I was told the Bible is God's word, and I expected God's word to be dictated first person from God. That's not the way God gave us the mm-hmm. Bible. I mean, there are certain parts of the Bible that are dictated. But instead, God inspired these different authors. These authors could do historical research, or, or you know, there were things that they knew if they were witnesses. But... It's not like they, uh, it wasn't like, you know, the, the Gospels, the person was just, you know, uh, listening, taking dictation as an angel was was dictating it or, or God was dictating it. And um, that's, inspiration means more than that. But mm-hmm. it took me a while to understand that. I was thinking probably more in Quranic terms mm-hmm. than in biblical terms. Once I read the Bible enough to get familiar with its its way of of you know working, it was like okay, this is the way the way it works. But I found that, <clears throat> like when I wrote historical Jesus of the Gospels, uh, and there I was just arguing for a critical minimum. I mean, I, I I believe more than that, but I was you know making a case for where I thought the strongest case could be made in in the public domain where people are using different kinds of methods. 
but what, what I was uh, arguing there, um, part of the argument was like, well, look, the Gospels are ancient biographies, and ancient biographies have uh, historical intention. And, well, naturally, skeptics jumped on that, and they said, how do you know that? I, I actually had one skeptic who, who said, well, there aren't any biographies uh, before the, the time of the, the Gospels. Biographies are later. I said, uh, excuse me, Cornelius Nepos was like a century, I mean, he was, he, he was about a century earlier, uh, full-fledged full surviving biographies. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, well, at least they didn't have any biographies of, of uh, divine men. I said, well, yeah, they didn't have a whole lot of divine men to write biographies about. But anyway, so... They, they also didn't have many accounts of moon landings before the 1960s. You know? <laughs> I know. Yeah, so uh, I, I realized, you know, I really need to make this stuff available because a lot of people have never read ancient biographies. And I was talking about this with, with uh, uh, someone you know very well, Mike, Mike Lacona. I think I've uh, heard of father. him. Yeah. <laughs> and so we... You know, we we were talking about. I was talking about it with a lot of people, but you know, Mike really really uh, took up the the torch, and I I was thinking if if he doesn't do it, I'm going to do it. Uh, and he went ahead and really delved into Plutarch uh, with the help of a a Plutarch specialist. So his is directly from you know the classicists uh, who had no you know they they weren't out to look for what the New Testament is like. They were just you know, the Pelling was just dealing with Plutarch. Mm -hmm. And so um, Mike found that that paralleled the, the New Testament a lot. Um, I was, I, I decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and write something too, um, not just with Plutarch, but, you know, my research was more wide ranging. And also uh, the book that I edited with T. Wright, a lot of my doctoral students, uh, you know, one, one semester mm -hmm. I said, you know, look, you guys, everybody always writes these papers that are just papers, and sometimes they become articles someday, but why don't we write a book together? Um, you're not obligated to do this. You can write a different kind of paper if you want to, but here's something that's never been done in New Testament and therefore needs to be done. I mean, there's all sorts of people keep a lot of New Testament scholars, they keep just, you know, mm -hmm. reinventing the wheel and going over the same material over and over. I said, let's let's go do something that hasn't been done. Let's look at ancient biographies. And you do, you you know, each one of you pick a certain historian or certain biographer and look at aspects of their methodology. And if you do a good job, we can use your essay uh, as and, and put it all together and, and see if it can come out as a book. And sure enough, you know, we, you know, here were people doing doctoral level research on different ancient biographers. And I, I told them, you know, don't slant this, just wherever the evidence goes, that's where we'll follow the evidence. If, if there's a lot of flexibility, well, then we know there's a lot of flexibility in ancient biography. We don't want to make too precise claims, you know, about the genre, um, you know, the New Testament can be at the more precise end or, you know, whatever, but let's just go with where the evidence leads. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some of them, well, some, some of them probably did that better than others, but in any case, what we came out with was fairly consistent in terms of, I, I knew what I had done with Suetonius, 
and mm-hmm. uh, comparing Suetonius, Plutarch, and Tacitus, and then some of the others um, did their own comparisons. And what we came out with, I thought, was pretty. You know, it it doesn't tell you what the Gospels are precisely, but it gives you a range of expectation. Okay, if somebody's writing an ancient biography, this is the kind of stuff they they need to deal with, and. So if the Gospels are ancient biographies, well, then what does that mean? And, um, yeah, so that's what we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was a very good book to read. I do remember, right, and, you know, when you talk about going through the Bible, I couldn't think about this joke about a Hindu man who was given a copy of the New Testament to read by a Christian, hoping it would convert him to uh, Christianity, and a man goes through and reads, and the end says, uh, Jesus, he's he's a great avatar. You know, and, and this guy says, why, what, why are you thinking that? Don't you see who he is? He says, oh, yes, yes, because you see, many of us have to go through life multiple times to reach our full potential, but Jesus became God after just three, th- three lives. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It takes it ta- it takes more reading, <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah, um, and in yeah, people come with their presuppositions that only get adjusted as we mm-hmm. submit to the text. Yeah. But, and I definitely can relate to what you said about you know there were no biographies and things that sort. Because sadly, if you for those of us who do spend time engaging with internet skeptics, they usually <laughs> are very high on passion, low on knowledge. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's why I don't spend time. Yeah, because it. I just can't. I could. I couldn't keep up with all the. They can think up weird ideas faster than I can respond by showing how those don't work in terms of ancient mm-hmm. evidence. But anyway, so let's start talking some about the book here. Now, one thing thing we have to get right off the bat is. The past, you know, is a funny place. They do things differently there, including how they do history, right? Yeah, I mean, the way we... When we speak of certain genres, I mean, the genres overlap with ancient genres, but they're not they're not the same. And, and you know, genre, all genre is, it's a certain... It's a way of classifying certain kinds of documents where you have certain kinds of expectations and people can always change, you know, uh, surprise you in your expectations. Like Mark is full of surprises. I think more than the average ancient biography would have been. Uh, and, and John is in a different way. Uh, John is much less subtle than Mark, but yeah, I think of, I think of this one, this one movie where it was like a comedy all the way through with the major hero, I think it was a Spanish movie about the Holocaust. And you're like, how can you make a comedy about the Holocaust? But it's this this guy who's trying to protect his his son. He's 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 married to a Gentile. He's Jewish. He's trying to protect his son. And at at the end, uh, just before the end, he gets shot. Uh, the son. The then the Allied troops come in and the. And the son and the mother are reunited and they're all happy and everybody's cheering. But meanwhile, you know, the guy who was like the main character all the way through got shot. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it's meant to shock you so much, like 
you know, that's not funny <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because it violates the genre and it just gets your attention. Uh, so genres don't have to, you don't have to follow all the rules of, of, a, of a given genre. However, mm. it is interesting, um, genres evolved. Like we don't have the genre of apocalyptic, so to speak, uh, but science fiction and fantasy and so on. I mean, well, fantasy actually adapts some mythological genre too, but, um, but you know, we have certain, certain kinds of things we can compare. Poetry is different. Hebrew poetry mm -hmm. didn't need to rhyme. Well, of course, you have free verse today. It doesn't have to rhyme. But uh, in Hebrew poetry, it was the balancing of ideas and, and uh, the, the balancing of, of lines. Uh, Greek poetry, you know, there'd be certain meter that would go with it. But again, mm -hmm. the rhyming wasn't an issue. So different cultures do things in different ways. And... Um, modern historiography, the rules that we've used for the past few centuries, those are, are modern rules. Um, you can't judge an ancient work by a genre that didn't exist yet. Now, when I say it didn't exist yet, or, you know, the genre of biography, ancient biography being different than modern biography, when I say you can't judge it by a, a genre that didn't exist yet, I'm not saying the one didn't evolve into the other. I mean, there is a relationship. Uh, both are concerned with historical information. Uh, but there are certain differences in how, in how you do it. Like an ancient historian, okay, they didn't have ways to um, record speeches the way we do today. And so, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you'd have the person's own uh, notes or own written out version of the speech, which sometimes they actually improved after the speech. But Usually, you didn't have that. And so, mm -hmm. normally with speeches, they would give you, you know, today we would say there was a speech on such an, such an occasion. This is what the speech was about. Back then, because, because they were concerned with it being flowing narrative, uh, and the narrative should include the speeches, they give you their best uh, reconstruction of what the speech should have been about. So if they knew that the speech covered this point, this point, and this point, they'd give you that, but they'd give you that in a form that approximated the way they thought it actually was delivered. Now, that's different than the way we do it today. It's not wrong. It's just mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that doesn't affect the Gospels because what we have uh, there are not like these long speeches. They're you know, often collections of Jesus' sayings. Uh, Sometimes we have speeches like like Jesus' uh, speech on on his discourse on the Mount of Olives, uh, but again the material hangs together. Uh, when you had biographies in schools of sages, the you know it was the responsibility of disciples to preserve their teachers' teachings. It didn't have to be all in sequence, but you did you know preserve the teachings. Mm -hmm. So um, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. In, uh, in Matthew 5 through uh, 7, 7 and chapter 6, you know, you have a bunch of stuff in Matthew's version that's not in Luke. Well, I mean, Jesus could have said much more and Luke could have left it out. But the thing is, you also have a lot of those sayings in other places in Luke. Jesus could have said the sayings more than once, but you have so much of this. And, and again, People could move the sayings around. They didn't have to be, especially if, if you just have a saying, you don't, you know, 
disciples remember Jesus said this, but nobody nobody was saying, okay, he said it on this and such and such an occasion. It didn't matter where you put it. And that was true in ancient biography. And today you could do the same thing, except you'd probably say, you know, he said this, he also said this, he also said this. Um, of course, today you'd probably want to have footnotes. You didn't have that in antiquity. Today you'd want to have quotation marks if you thought it was an exact quotation. If you didn't think it was an exact quotation, you'd say, he said that. Well, back then, uh, they often would say that, <laughs> haughty in Greek, but they didn't have quotation marks. Uh, they, they never had quotation marks. So our, our ways of handling it are different from back then. And as long as we keep that in mind, I mean, if we're trying to do modern historiography from ancient sources, we can do it to some extent. We just mm -hmm. have to keep in mind what the ancient sources are doing so we don't kind of mistranslate into our our setting something that was written in a different setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's then start talking specifically about Jesus. Yeah, now, I, I know you can't dismiss it in the book, but... <laughs> but uh, I know you just missed some in the book, which I understand, but for the sake of a podcast and a popular audience, can you give a brief statement on the idea of Jesus' mythicism? Oh, dear. Um, there, there are some more nuanced forms that speak of some myth. Mm -hmm. uh, but one problem is, even when you are using that language at all, normally when ancient historians spoke of myth, Mm -hmm. They were speaking of the distant past, mm -hmm. and when historians mm -hmm. and biographers included what they considered myth, it was about the distant past. It wasn't about the recent past. It wasn't about the past generation, like what you have in the Gospels. Um, and, and they did sometimes have some things that they wouldn't have considered myth, but that modern people often consider myth. But even those were not about the recent past. I mean, they might be about you know, 100 years earlier, 150 years earlier, but not within mm -hmm. living memory. But anyway, uh, getting back to the popular level mythicists, because um, those are the ones that scholars usually don't have to deal with because mm -hmm. it just doesn't come up very often among scholars. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, the, the people who are trying to combine, uh, you know, myths of Osiris and things like that. I mean, Osiris is actually the one dying and rising God where we actually have early evidence for a dying and rising God, but it's a fertility thing. It's like every year. Mm -hmm. It's very different from the Jewish doctrine of a once-for-all permanent resurrection of the body, uh, which, which is what you have in the Gospels. Um, it's always in the Gospels placed in the eschatological context, the, the end-time context of, of the promised uh, future resurrection. In the Gospels, it's uh, – <clears throat> and in Paul, I mean, Paul is writing – he's writing stuff within 20 years of Jesus' resurrection. He's writing in Greek settings, and he's using Jewish language, he's using biblical language – to speak of of Jesus' resurrection, you get to First Corinthians, where he's he's citing earlier witnesses that go back to the earliest days of the movement, and you know he 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 connects it with the end time, once for all resurrection of the of the dead, uh, going back to Daniel chapter twelve. I mean that's it's not based on on any of these um, mystery religions or anything like that. 
the the heyday of parallels with mystery religions in the so-called religion geschichte schule um, and w- that was the early 20th century we know so much more now about um about mystery religions for one thing we know so much more about greek religion in general we know so much more about uh, jewish religion um so many more things have been published have been translated scholars can deal with it so much more that stuff is all passé in mm-hmm. terms of scholarship uh, and then some of the stuff on the internet isn't even from that it's just totally made up mm-hmm. um, some people have tried to make some people who don't want to take uh, any don't want to take seriously the gospels which are written within living memory you know written within a generation or two of Jesus ministry they they don't want to take that seriously they want to read into it material where if you go back and check the sources these sources are like centuries after the putative events and some of them are you know they're written down centuries after the traditions they supposedly talk about <laughs> a lot of them are written down centuries after the gospels after christianity was so widespread in the roman empire that it became its stories became part of the repertoire of other people's stories uh, that's why you know people compare philostratus's life of apollonius that i think is the best comparison the most solid comparison that a mythicist can make uh, <clears throat> it's um, the, the problem the problem is that philostratus is writing he's writing in the early 3rd century you know, he's writing way after the Gospels. And he's writing at a time when the stories that were in the Gospels were widely circulated. In in uh, Rudolf Bultmann's commentary on John, and he actually liked John, but uh, in his commentary on John, a lot of the background he uses for it, and, and Bultmann was a real scholar, but Bultmann uses Mendean background for the Gospel of John. Well, what's our source for the Mendeans? I mean, we have a few fragments from... You know, maybe uh, half a millennium after the after Jesus' ministry, but most of our sources for 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 what Mendeans actually believed come from like a millennium. You know, like a thousand years after the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. You know, when Christianity was widespread. I mean, which way did the influence go? Mm-hmm. I I don't know anybody today who who actually agrees with Boltmann on that is background for the Gospel of John, and there may be somebody, but some people, yeah, sometimes people think anachronistically, they don't think historically in solid historical terms. Yeah, I, I think also, if I remember correctly, that Apollonius, that writer, was commissioned by a member of royalty as well to write this. So yeah. that that was that's an important part of it. Uh, I I am I only ask briefly because I know the scholars don't have to deal with that, but most of my audience sadly does still have to deal with this, including me at times. So Sorry. that's yeah. Oh yes, I very, very much am. <laughs> so uh, let's get into this now. What since we're going to just go and say Jesus is definitely a historical figure. I mean, even if we don't say, you know, like the Bible is the inspired word of God or something like that, what can we know about Jesus from history? Uh, lots and lots. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's some elements that almost everybody agrees on, all, well, mm-hmm. among scholars. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> almost mm-hmm. all scholars 
uh, with maybe one or two publishing exceptions. So thousands of scholars um, acknowledge that Jesus was a historical figure. Jesus actually existed. Yeah. Why? You know, yeah. unless disciples were suicidal, they wouldn't make up a, a a hero, their hero, who was crucified, executed by the Romans for the uh, for high treason. I mean, here you are. You're following somebody who was executed for high treason. What does that make you? <laughs> you you're mm-hmm. going to get yourself killed, uh, which eventually started happening. Um, so, almost everybody agrees that Jesus was executed under Pontius Pilate, um, and generally it's agreed that he was executed on the charge of king of the Jews. You know, that's who the disciples believed he was. Um, that's uh, That explains why he would get crucified uh, just outside of Jerusalem uh, under, under a Roman governor. And, well, Roman, uh, <clears throat> Pilate executed him as king of the Jews, and the disciples believed he's king of the Jews. If you connect the dots, probably both ideas go back to, to Jesus himself, although, again, he was fairly subtle about it until toward the end when it was time to uh, face his death. Um, some people say, well, actually, okay, moving now from something that a uh, majority of scholars say to something that's more controversial, I believe Jesus actually did predict his death, did foreknow his death. I don't think there's any way you can go into the temple, overturn the tables in the temple, and stick around in Jerusalem and not expect to get executed, (laughs) because Mm. that's the way they handled disturbers in the temple. I mean, there's one guy who just went around the temple prophesying its destruction, Joshua ben Ananiah, a generation later. He just went around prophesying the destruction of the temple, and uh, they... They grabbed him. They, they. Uh, this is in Josephus's uh, Jewish War, mm-hmm. Book Six, Paragraphs Three Hundred and Following. Uh, the the uh, the high priestly establishment arrested him, handed him over to the Roman governor. He was beaten, Josephus says, until his bones showed, and then the governor let him go because he said, eh, you know, he's he's harmless. He's insane. Doesn't have a following." Jesus was not considered insane. Jesus did have a significant following, especially of Galileans. And so um, things went a different way. Mm. But that, that's, it's the way, it's what we know about ancient politics, too. I mean, troublemakers were normally, um, even, even uh, you know, cynics, cynic philosophers were often ignored. They just mouthed off a lot. But, you know, when when you uh, actually interfere at a major festival with the uh, money changers and all that in the temple, uh, you are you are publicly challenging the temple authorities uh, who lose face if they don't respond. With anyway, there's just uh, I'm 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 going off too much on that because uh, I need to give you a summary of what most scholars think. Most scholars believe that Jesus was a teacher. I mean, pretty, pretty much all scholars who believe that Jesus was uh, a historical figure agree that he was a teacher. Therefore, he had disciples. Now, I believe one of the upshots of that is, from what we know of ancient discipleship, that they would have preserved his teachings. Uh, I mean, not that they would have remembered everything he said, but they certainly would have remembered more than enough to fill a few Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, 
also, um, most scholars believe uh, that's that's my my take on discipleship. Uh, but most scholars believe he was a teacher with disciples. Most scholars also believe that he was experienced by his contemporaries as a healer, as a wonder worker, as somebody who cast out spirits. Uh, that's that's the majority of scholars. That includes those who don't believe in actual miracles. Uh, mm -hmm. Morton Smith, who classified Jesus as a magician. Uh, E.P. Sanders, who was one of my professors at Duke. Uh, it was his TA for a while. E.P. Sanders, uh, uh, very, uh, he, he always was very fair with us. And he tries to be fair with different uh, views. But uh, I don't think he actually talked much. Well, he, he didn't state that there was supernatural activity going on, but he believed that Jesus was experienced by his contemporaries as, as a healer and an exorcist. Uh, it's just fairly common across the board, John Meyer and others, uh, Jesus as a healer and exorcist. So um, uh, Jesus teaching, Jesus taught in parables uh, is one of his ways of teaching. He taught mm -hmm. in, uh, in short sayings, um, which... You know, all of these are characteristic of a lot of ancient sages. So, you know, no, nobody has reason to doubt that they were characteristic of Jesus. Sometimes things that people don't want to say Jesus did, it's because uh, they weren't characteristic of other sages. But, you know, maybe Jesus was different in some ways, which is what I would say. Mm -hmm. Since most sages had some differences from each other, why not let Jesus have some too? But, mm -hmm. but on the whole, there's certain things that, that most of us agree about. Um, in terms of in terms of a lot of these things, Josephus writing in, in antiquities, I think it's eighteen sixty three and sixty four, paragraph sixty three and sixty four. And Josephus has a couple paragraphs about John the Baptist earlier. Later, he's going to have a paragraph about James, the brother of Jesus, uh, referring back to his, his what he says about Jesus. And then he's got these paragraphs about Jesus. Now. Later, Christian scribes, they wanted to improve those, and so they wanted to make make Jesus, uh, make Josephus say he was the Messiah, uh, which is kind of weird since the way Josephus behaved, you wouldn't want to think he was a Christian. But anyway, um, but scholars are pretty sure what the original of this was before it was tampered with, and there's also an early Arabic uh, version that, that pretty much agrees with what scholars have said, that that fits what Josephus probably would have said, uh, that Josephus was a wise teacher. He, mm -hmm. uh, he and John the Baptist are, are two of the only ones that Josephus doesn't really rail against because they, they had followings, but they didn't try to, you know, uh, they didn't become a threat to the, the establishment, like, you know, getting followers to, like, try to uh, bring in the end by their own force or something like that. Um, but Jesus was a wise teacher. He was a wonder worker. Josephus uses the same term there, paradoxa, that he uses for Elisha's miracles. Uh, and it's not the only way he uses that, that term, but it's the way he used that term with regard to um, teachers or, or leaders. And uh, Geza Vermish, uh, an Oxford uh, a, a Hungarian Jewish scholar at Oxford, uh, now now deceased, but he he made uh, a really strong case for this. Uh, it's followed by the majority of scholars, and also um, 
according to the most probable reading, uh, probably this is in the original text of Josephus, Jesus was uh, executed by the leading officials in Jerusalem, uh, Jewish officials in Jerusalem, who handed him over to uh, Pilate and had him executed. In terms of Jesus being executed by Pilate, uh, you know, we, we know plenty about Pilate from Josephus and Philo, but as far as Roman historians who mainly cared about what happened in Rome, um, Tacitus is the only mention of Pilate, and he happens to mention him in connection with Jesus. In Tacitus' mm -hmm. Annals 1544, when Tacitus is recording some events that took place uh, around 30 years after Jesus' public ministry, he uh, well, 30, around 34 years, according to at least the way I would date it, um, he he says that uh, the, these Christians were followers of uh, Jesus, who was crucified by Pontius Pilate. So Pontius Pilate becomes significant in Roman uh, history only because he was the one who executed Jesus, who becomes important to Roman historians who are dealing with Rome when Jesus' movement becomes a big movement in Rome <clears throat> within three and a half decades after after Jesus' public ministry. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, I mean, I could go on <laughs> with these things, but we, we can know a whole lot more than that, mm -hmm. and that's part of what I'm arguing in the book. But, um, but those are, yeah, those are some samples. I need to let you ask more questions and me shut up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to let you always know I'm, Dr. Kino has his webcam up so I can see him right now, and when he's giving these references and Josephus and the locations and all these other things, he is not using a computer, apparently. He's doing this all from memory, somehow. Yeah, my, my wife has a theory that you're a cyborg, really, but <laughs> that, that could be right. Hi, this is Justin Brawley of the Unbelievable Radio Show and Podcast, recommending another podcast to you. Nick Peters is a deep thinker, a friend of mine, and he has an inspiring faith. So you should listen to him and his excellent guests on the Deeper Waters show. So keep going deeper and keep getting uh, wetter, I guess. Blessings, Nick. Keep up the good work. Let's get back into the book. Now, you, you're saying that these... Uh works or biographies, but Dr. Kino, we can go to a library and pick up a biography of, say, George Washington or Steve Jobs or some other major figure today, and it's really different. I mean, you can read about the person's childhood, their teenage years, all these things in there, and heck, two of the Gospels don't even say a thing about Jesus' childhood. How can these be biographies? Well, there were different yeah. Modern biographies are different from ancient biographies mm. uh, in a number of respects. I mean, you can pick up a, a, a thick, right? actually your audience can't see my, the, mm. what I'm doing with my hand, but you <laughs> can pick up a thick biography of somebody today. Well, obviously the Gospels are a lot shorter than that. You can, you can read Mark in a couple hours, reading it out loud. So uh, ancient biographies differed in size. Of course, back then you didn't have printing presses. Gutenberg hadn't hadn't developed a printing press yet. You didn't have electronic ways to copy things. You know, you were stuck with hand copyists. So naturally things were shorter, they were more expensive, 
gospel of Mark in today's currency probably would have been something like a couple thousand dollars to get a copy of that. Um, so, you know, there are differences. One of the differences is the length. Uh, but an another, another difference is that ancient biographies were, they were limited in what they would focus on. They wanted to bring out the character of the person and sometimes you have that in ancient uh, his the larger classification of historiography biography was a subdivision of historiography but within this uh, within within biography itself bring out the character of the person so you might tell an anecdote about them that wouldn't be considered historically significant enough for history you know something about a war or something would be significant for history but um, something that just showed you what the person was like. <clears throat> um, but also biographies would, usually they did say something about the person's background, but not always a lot. Sometimes it would be just a line. Often it depended on how much information they had about the person's past and how significant they thought that it was. Sometimes they don't say anything about the person's past. Uh, although that's rare. So in the Mark, uh, his introduction for Jesus, it's enough, you know, he's just going to deal with his public, public ministry. And it's his introduction is John the Baptist. And uh, scripture from uh, Isaiah and also weaving in Malachi, that mm. shows mm. Uh, this, this actually goes back way before Jesus' birth, and <laughs> that this was prophesied from the beginning. And of course, John goes way back before before Jesus' incarnation. Mm. But uh, Matthew and Luke both do have stories surrounding Jesus' birth. And Luke has a little bit about his childhood. It's just an anecdote. They focus more on the public ministry. Uh, that's primarily what the disciples knew, what the disciples could pass on. So... What I found with historical biographies from the period of the early empire, now this is, you go back further than that, this isn't always the case, but especially from the period of the early empire, um, <clears throat> if biographers didn't have information or at least stories, I mean, you know, whether it's true information or not, if, if they didn't have some stories about the person's childhood, they didn't make them up. They just told what they had. And I think that's good to let us know that the gospel writers weren't making things up. If they didn't have material, they didn't use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you know, you're talking about the material they had, but geez, I meet people all the time. I mean, you're not going to say, what kind of material? I mean, the gospels didn't even cite fair sources. That's what any good writer would do. Well, that's what I usually do. And I mean, that's what I do in all my academic works. Mm -hmm. uh, not my blog post or something, but uh, no, uh, back then that that wasn't uh, necessary. <clears throat> In fact, ancient historians and biographers usually cited their sources only when they had different sources um, disagreeing with one another. Otherwise, they'd say, this is the common view or this is the view or if they're writing within living memory. You know, they may just say, this is what happened. Like Suetonius does that in his biography of Otho. And then toward the end, he says, and by the way, my, uh, I got this anecdote from my 
father who was an officer in Otho's army. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, of course he knows a lot about Otho. Um, Otho was within living memory. There were still a lot of people who remembered him. But, you know, when Arian is writing a biography of Alexander the Great, there's one point where he says, well, five sources say this, but the majority of sources say that. And that's when you find out, oh, he's got way more than 10 sources. You know, five say this, but the majority say that. He's got way more than five in the majority. So, you know, he's got plenty of sources, but he's not specifying which sources, which thing most of the time. When they disagree, that's when he may tell you this one said this and this one says that. When you're writing within living memory, you're going to have less disagreement. Uh, I maybe should explain living memory. <clears throat> in, in terms of oral historiography, oral historians often differentiate between what, what we call oral tradition and oral history. Oral history comes from the period within living memory. It's like 80 to 100 years. Mm -hmm. And normally it's the period when... Some people who knew the person are still alive. So within the lifetime of eyewitnesses, uh, or, or even those who knew the eyewitnesses, usually there's kind of a control of, of historical memory. After that, things can get a little strange. So, you know, you have the, the four Gospels that are from the first century, and then you have second century uh, and later, what we call the Gnostic Gospels or the Apocryphal Gospels, none mm -hmm. of those are from within living memory, not a single one of them. Mm -hmm. That's a big mm -hmm. difference between what we have in the canonical Gospels and the other ones. The, the difference isn't just that one's canonical and the other isn't. That's mm -hmm. why one is canonical. The early church said, no, if it's not from uh, the disciples or somebody who knew the, the original disciples, then it doesn't make it in. So you could make up whatever story you want to later on. It's not it's not allowed to make it into the the canon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you still there? Yeah, I'm still I'm still hello. I'm still here. Okay. I'm getting weird. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, and so in that, <clears throat> yeah, I do come across that kind of claim pretty often about not citing. Sources and it is within living memory. Isn't that what Papias said also? But he'd rather talk to a living voice as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, within within living memory, you know, you've got this common tradition. And and Luke, by the way, kind of does refer to his sources when he says, you know, there's many who've written about these things. So Luke at least knows about these written sources by the mm -hmm. time that he writes. Wish some of those were available today instead of these late second, third century, whatever, <laughs> up to medieval times. But uh, Luke Luke mentions others have written, um, almost certainly including Mark and probably including another source that Luke shares in common with Matthew. But at the same time, Luke um, also goes on to say, to speak of material that goes back to the eyewitnesses. It's been passed down uh, using the language that was used for disciples, passing down uh, information from their teachers to their own students in in schools of, of thought. So uh, this could be passed on very, very carefully. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
you know, he doesn't he doesn't name his sources, but he he's clearly using sources, and you can see that by how he uses Mark and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, something else people often say about the Gospels, as well as they consider, contain affect contain events that are said to be miraculous or supernatural, is sometimes said. I don't prefer a term, but it's what they use. But yeah. isn't that common in pretty much every ancient biography from the time? Well, not everyone. I mean, it depends on what they're writing about. If they're writing about a general, mm. well, I guess, yeah, in the sense of, like, uh, people following omens, yeah, uh, using nation or so on. Uh, in, in terms of healings and exorcisms, it's not it's not that common. It depends right. on about whom they're writing. You do have Suetonius and Tacitus writing about an event within living memory associated with an emperor, Vespasian, where he he uh, he didn't believe it, but he uh, you know somebody kept insisting you know please uh, uh, just touch this this lame person and this blind person. And he, he finally gave in and touched him, and they were healed. And <clears throat> this was in Alexandria. And one of the common opinions today is, well, this was this was staged by the priests of Serapis, whether Vespasian was in on it or not. Mm. Uh, so they think it was fake. But um, but what people don't say is that the eyewitnesses didn't didn't claim this. It's within living memory, and it seems pretty clear eyewitnesses did claim that. And uh, that that is what people saw, whatever was behind it. Mm-hmm. No, uh, and then and then you have uh, like Livy the historian, for every year, and he's got annals for this, uh, reporting all these uh, portents or omens, where uh, some of them are probably the kind of thing you see in tabloids. You know, this goat born with a human head and things like that. Uh, the ancient solution for that, the ancient. A naturalistic solution for that was get uh, wives for your shepherds, but um, we, we, of course that doesn't work biologically. But you know, some of that is just you know, obviously somebody made it up, not the historian. But this is you know, by the time it gets to the historian, this is this is the report. But on the other hand, and, and they're not citing witnesses for that. They don't claim it goes back to eyewitnesses or anything like that. But then you also have. A lot of other things, like lightning striking a, a, a statue of a deity, or uh, you know what we today would call the aurora borealis, other things that that can be explained completely naturalistically. Now, with Jesus' ministry of healing and exorcism, many people today will say, "Okay, well, once he gained that reputation, uh, it could be psychosomatic. There could be a lot of things restored psychosomatically." That might work for aches and pains, and there were plenty of people actually who would follow anybody who could, you know, heal their aches and pains. You know, uh, so many people gathered at Hamat Tiberius, the hot springs near Tiberius, for their aches and pains. But I mean, the Gospels, every layer of Gospel tradition, you've got Jesus healing, uh, I mean, raising the dead. <laughs> you've got him uh, healing the sick. So it's not just. Um, it's not just things that can be explained psychosomatically. You've got some other things too. You've got um, you have like one third of Mark's gospel, close to one third of Mark's gospel, is consumed with healing and exorcism accounts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. 
in the the material shared by Matthew and Luke, that be, besides what's in Mark, you've also got Jesus being asked by John the Baptist, you know, are you the one to come or, or should we look for somebody else? Not not the kind of flattering thing that you would think somebody would make up about about Jesus that John the Baptist is doubting on his deathbed, so to speak. And and Jesus says to John's messengers, go tell John what you've heard and seen. The blind see, the disabled walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Um, alluding to Isaiah 35, and then he says also the good news preached to the poor, alluding to Isaiah 61. Um, this is normally regarded as consistent with uh, Jesus' ministry in that mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the citation of Isaiah 35 and 61, uh, that's a Judean kind of thing. You have it in the Dead Sea Scrolls as something that God or the Messiah would do. There's a difference of opinion on who, who the source is. I think it's God there. but um, And also, it's consistent with Jesus viewing his miracles as signs of the kingdom. So it's consistent with his, his preaching. And you have another case of that in uh, also in the material shared by Matthew and Luke. In, uh, the, the first one was Matthew 11, verses 5 and 6, and Luke 7, 21 and 22. But also in, in um, Matthew 12, 28, and Luke eleven twenty. In that passage, uh, Jesus says, if I, by the finger of God or by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then God's kingdom has come upon you. <clears throat> so again, uh, seeing seeing his miracle working as signs of, of the kingdom, uh, consistent with what almost everybody agrees was mm-hmm. central in his teaching, mm-hmm. namely the, his, his preaching about God's kingdom. Um, so you have it in... in Clearly, in these, in both of these sources, in uh, in Mark, you have it in the material shared by by Matthew and Luke, which I think I think most of us believe is earlier than Mark, um, although there may be debate on that. And in the, in that source, uh, it's mentioned that Jesus does this not just once or twice, but this is something he does multiple times. Obviously, you have it in John. John gives some some different accounts. Claims to be based on the uh, testimony of the beloved disciple. You you also have Josephus talking about Jesus working signs. You have it in uh, Quadratus, who's who's um, writing in the early second century. He was a bishop, so he was probably of significant age by the early second century. Uh, he says that some of some of those that Jesus raised from the dead, and I think you know people like maybe Jairus's daughter, or um, or maybe um, the the son the of a widow of Nain. Uh, yeah, Luke seven. Yeah, um, that stories. He says some of those that Jesus raised from the dead lived into our own time, so they uh, they stayed alive. <laughs> For a long time, mm-hmm. you, so so you have a lot of um, a lot of attestation. You also have it continuing in the early church. You have it continuing in the Book of Acts. Revelation speaks of signs and wonders. Um, Paul says basically, wherever I went to plant churches, 
signs and wonders happened. Romans 15, 19. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul appeals to the eyewitness of his own audience, which normally you wouldn't do if you thought they would refute you or wouldn't be persuaded. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. You saw the signs and wonders of an apostle done among you. Um, the critics of Christianity in the second century were, were you know, eager to discredit it. And how did they deal with the miracles? Well, they, they didn't say that Jesus didn't perform wonders. They said, no, he did them by means of sorcery. So they didn't try to, to deny that these things happened. Now, <clears throat> um, you, you also, in terms of whether eyewitnesses can report things like this, you actually have, uh, this is a whole new train of thought, but you actually have plenty of people today. You have medically documented cases where somebody prays for somebody and they're healed of something that normally doesn't go away on its own. You have, uh, there was a, a survey done, I think it was 2006, Pew, Pew Forum survey in 10 countries. And in the 10 countries they surveyed, you, you total up the, you know, the, you extrapolate from the percentages to the, what the numbers would imply. Hundreds of millions of people in those 10 countries claim to have witnessed or experienced divine healing. Now, there's no, there's no way you can go back and check every one of those. Nobody would say that every one of those is actually a case of divine healing. But what we do have clearly is people who believe that they've experienced it or witnessed it. This isn't a legend. And that's how Strauss, uh, David Friedrich Strauss in the 1800s tried to deal with some of the miracle stories in the Gospels. Well, these are legends that evolved over generations of time. The Gospels were written in the second century. Uh, he dated them much later than is possible today. Uh, and and you know, said these legends, even in his own time, Strauss should have known better because there was uh, a friend of his by the name of Edward Morica. And Morica had a diagnosed spinal problem it was very difficult for him to walk. And then when uh, he spent some time with the German Lutheran pastor, Johann Christoph Blumhardt, in the Black Forest region of Germany, he was, he was healed. Uh, he, he ends up hiking in the mountains. And, and Strauss is disturbed by this. Strauss says, oh, no, he's going to abandon anti-supernaturalism now. He's going to He's, he's actually going to believe in miracles now. And that Strauss doesn't stop and think, okay, this is something that happened in their own time. This is not a legend. However you explain it, this is not a legend that, that merely developed over, over many generations. So the, the, the dismissal of, of healings and exorcisms simply on the basis that, um, well, that's supernatural uh, and, and trying to put that in the same classification as myths with many-headed monsters and stuff like that, that's, that's absurd. That's, that's something that only somebody who's like classified everything that is superhuman or everything, that, uh, everything that somebody, somebody else would classify as superhuman, just, just dismissing that. No, I believe Jesus did actual miracles 
divine miracles uh, from from God. So I'm not I'm not saying uh, you only accept the psychosomatic ones, mm. but um, but to say to say that you know that's myth, even even if you don't believe in in a deity, to to dismiss the gospels. On that basis, and say, well, it's all fiction because you've got these these healings and exorcisms taking place. That that doesn't make good sense. Mm-hmm. When you're listening to the Deeper Wars podcast, you get Dr. Craig Kino here talking about his book, Christobiography. We're here next week. We're starting off our look at abortion again, as we do every January. And we're having an atheist come on to talk about her stance against abortion. Albany Rose got a story about she was raped and forced to have an abortion. So we will be talking about an atheist perspective on why they are against abortion. For now... Let's get back to Dr. Keener. Now, Dr. Keener, yeah, and you, when you were talking about this, I was giving, gosh, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be so great if there had been some scholar who'd gone and written a work on miracles and citing miracles going on all over the world? I mean, don't, don't you think that'd be an incredibly helpful resource to have? It might be, but mm. it's just, it's low-hanging fruit. I mean, there's so many mm. accounts of miracles taking place that, it would be rather easy to compile a, a bunch of information on that. Mm. Yeah, of course, for those who don't know, uh, when Dr. King was first on the show, we were talking about just that work, his two-volume Miracles book, which I really think could be the most important work you've ever produced, you know, since for our day and age. Oh. Um, let's talk, say something else about the Gospels. One of the other criticisms brought up against Gospels is the Gospels are anonymous. We don't even know who wrote them. Uh, that's that's a common argument. That one is commonly made among scholars, too. That's not just a popular argument. Uh, a couple a couple responses to that is, one is, uh, even, if, even if they were anonymous, they're early in terms of you know, what you expect from ancient biographies, they're pretty close to the time of the events. But another is, who says that they're anonymous? I mean, they're mm-hmm. uh, technically, intrinsically anonymous because the author isn't named inside the text. But the people who say that that's unusual, and there are a lot of scholars who say that that's unusual, haven't read very much ancient historiography <laughs> or ancient biography. Because quite often, in in not just these, but other ancient documents, the authors do not name themselves within the document. <laughs> the, 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 the name may be on the outside of the document, but it's not copied as part of the document itself. 
Um, sometimes it's just handed on in the name of somebody. You know, it's it's known that this person produced the work. Now, uh, how do we know that? You have uh, uh, the Lamprius catalog of Plutarch's works, and it, here I'm de- depending again on on your father-in-law, mm-hmm. but um, <clears throat> you know that's from so much later than the time. A lot of our a lot of our attributions for classical works come from a lot later because they don't always name themselves within the work. Well, um, in the case of the Gospels, I mean, Luke dedicates his work to Theophilus. Clearly, Theophilus knew who Luke was. When, when, when Luke says we in his second volume, I mean, his audience would have known who was writing. The fact that, that Luke and Matthew are willing to make use of Mark so soon after um, Mark's publication probably means that they knew that they had good reason to trust Mark's account. Um, They they probably had some good idea who Mark was. I mean, scholars today may say, we can't know, it was a couple thousand years ago, but chances are Matthew and Luke knew uh, that when they're writing, especially when Luke says there were many sources available and and he depends so heavily on Mark, he must he must have thought Mark was a pretty important source. And of course, Matthew, you know, ninety percent of of Mark's uh, material appears in some form in Matthew. Mm. So, um, in terms of anonymity, <clears throat> um, Papias, writing in the early second century, he's not writing. Well, depending on your datum. If you, if you date him at 110, as a number of scholars do, then Papias is probably writing within living memory of Jesus' ministry, but the outer end of living memory. If you date him around, well, no, yeah, even if you date him at 130, it would be the outer end of living memory. But if you date him at 110, it would be, you know, closer. Uh, but anyway, in terms of, where you date Papias, uh, whether it's one between somewhere between 110 and 130, uh, I like the earlier date, but I'm not really enough of a scholar on Papias to say it has to be the earlier date versus the later date. In any case, either one, Papias is writing within living memory mm-hmm. of when the Gospel mm-hmm. of Mark was written. So chances are Papias has a good idea of it. If Papias were going to make up an attribution, wants to make Mark very authoritative, he could say, you know, it's written by Peter. Or he could, you know, name name somebody else who's very prominent. Instead, he says, it's written by Mark. And <clears throat> Mark got his material from Peter. Well, I think internally, I think the first time I read uh, Richard Bauckham's work on this, I didn't agree. But as I kept working in Mark, I've come to agree with him on this. The, the so many of the scenes, not all of them, but so many of the scenes are scenes where Peter was present. Peter is so prominent in the story. It does make sense that this is written from, a lot of it is, is from Peter's point of view. Uh, Peter obviously wasn't living in a vacuum afterwards, and he would have heard the other stories, like from the women at the tomb and so on. But uh, it, it makes sense that Mark has this from, from Peter. The you know, Papias says, Papias isn't just saying this for himself. Papias says he got this from John the Elder. 
And he apparently got this from John the Elder in the first century. So, and the later you date Mark, the closer <laughs> you date it to the time of Papias or John the Elder. I don't tend to date Mark. Uh, well, scholars don't. The range of when scholars date Mark varies, but not a whole lot. Usually it's between 65 and 75. Uh, usually somewhere around 70. I, I tend to go for 65. Some scholars date Mark earlier than that. Um, but in any case, you know, if you want to date Mark, you know, as late as 75, hey, that's that's really close to John the Elder's time. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So you've got Matthew and Luke who both depend on this as if Mark is an important source, even though Mark isn't a firsthand witness himself. You have John the Elder, who might, well, I think, John the Elder probably is John the Apostle. That's my reading of the Papias fragments. That's not Eusebius's reading. But in any case, um, I need to quit digressing because I keep saying things that uh, I would have to explain if I... But anyway, um, the, 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 the time period is so, is so close. John the Elder undoubtedly knew who authored Mark. He undoubtedly knew why there was such authority behind the Gospel of Mark that subsequent Gospel writers would use it, probably also explains why the Gospel of Mark survived. It, un, unlike this common source I mentioned before of, of Matthew and Luke, explains why the Gospel of Mark survived in the second century when a lot of church fathers didn't think they needed it that much because they already had um, Matthew that included so much of Mark. You also have Justin Martyr writing in the mid-2nd century, probably not dependent on Papias. I mean, Papias may be our only source from, from the early 2nd century that talks about it, but that doesn't mean that was the only one that was available. Um, Justin Martyr speaks of the, uh, the readings of Scripture and Church and includes the memoirs of the apostles. And among them, he mentions... Uh, something that only occurs in the Gospel of Mark, uh, and and you know he thinks that's from Peter. So it does seem that there was a consensus already in the early second century, and going back to the late first century, that the Gospel of Mark was written by somebody named Mark, who got the material from Peter, or at least most of his material from Peter. Mm -hmm. As far as John's gospel, um, it claims to be based on the, the witness of the beloved disciple. And actually there were some apparently Gnostic sources that were already accepting it around the year 130. So anyway, I'm digressing too much, but but the Aquino of the Gospels are also biased, aren't they? I mean, can we really trust a biased source? Well, even if you look at modern biographies, you compare a couple different biographies of Lincoln, a couple different biographies of Churchill, you're mm -hmm. going to have different perspectives on, the, on their subjects. They don't always come at it from the same approach or the same perspective. Mm -hmm. That's the same for ancient writers. Ancient writers were more overt about it. Often they would tell you up front, you know, this person was was 
good or this person was bad. But actually, ancient biographies usually included a mixture of praise and blame. That was considered necessary to their uh, to their work as ancient biographers. So Suetonius, for example, uh, you know, some, some people are more worthy of praise or blame than others. So Suetonius, you know, he... He likes Augustus for the most part. He doesn't like Nero, so he's going to have a whole bunch of bad stuff about Nero. But first he tells you some, some good stuff about Nero, gets it out of the way, and then goes on to the bad stuff. So he arranges it topically, but when he does so, he gives you a whole bunch of, uh, whole bunch of examples and more in the negative than the positive, but even with the ones he, he detests, such as Nero, Caligula, Domitian, he can give you something good that they did. You know, he wants to have the appropriate mixture of praise and blame. Polybius, uh, writing much earlier than this, Polybius was a historian writing in Greek mm -hmm. about the, the rise of the Roman Republic. Polybius says that you have to have the right mixture of praise and blame as you're talking about people. So, yeah, you are going to evaluate your characters morally, even in history. But he says the difference between that and writing, you know, or, um, the difference between that and giving a, a speech praising somebody or blaming somebody is historians have to be more neutral. Well, if you. If Tacitus is writing a biography of his father-in-law, Agricola, you know, it's, it's almost all positive. Is that because Tacitus is biased? Well, maybe. Um, but that doesn't mean he makes up the information he includes about his father-in-law. Mm -hmm. He's positive about his father-in-law because he actually views his father-in-law positively, as I, I hope you also view your father-in-law positively. Uh, I think you do. Uh, my, I, I view my father-in-law very positively. He's, he's going to be with the Lord, but, um, not everybody views their in-laws positively as we know from mother-in-law jokes that go back at least as, as old as Aristophanes. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, if he thinks positively of his father-in-law, it's probably because he has some positive things to report about him. Now, in the case of the gospels, yeah, they report positive things about Jesus. That doesn't mean they make up the things they say about Jesus. And if they're right, if Jesus really is God in the flesh, chances are what you would have to say about him ought to be rather positive. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something wrong with your evaluation. But anyway, um, so again, that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of solid information about Jesus. It just means... You know, when we read ancient works, we take into account their perspective. And you do have different perspectives among the different gospel writers, mm -hmm. not in terms of any of them thinking negatively about Jesus, but they come, they come at it from different angles. That's why we have four different gospels. And it gives you a fuller, uh, I wouldn't say a four-dimensional picture, because <laughs> uh, that would connote something different. But it gives you, a, it gives you different angles that gives you a fuller perspective on, on Jesus in his, his ministry. Well, let's uh, talk about some of the differences. I mean, one step to start with is 
The Book of X, which is seen to be a sequel to Luke, but Luke is a biography, and X is definitely not a biography. Uh, well, actually, there's a debate about that, too, but yeah. Um, I don't really get into too much the debates about the people say X is, is a, uh, a serial biography, that is a biography of multiple characters, uh, I don't think it works that well, that idea. But, you know, those who say that and those who say that the Gospel of Luke is actually a historical monograph, I, I don't get into those debates that much. I think that Acts is historical monograph and Luke is biography. But I think that there's so much overlap. I mean, biography was a, a kind of historical work. You have the same thing. I may be getting this wrong. Um, most of my stuff from memory, my memory is a little bit more solid, but I think it may be the 10th book of Diodorus Siculus, maybe the 10th book of Dionysius of Halicarnassus. Anyway, somebody, um, they, they have, a, they have a, a volume dedicated to Alexander the Great. Now, if you take that volume by itself, it would be a biography. Mm -hmm. But if you take it as a volume within the larger work, it's, you know, it's a, it's a book within a larger history. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so Luke acts together is a historical work. Um, but it also has some parallels with parallel biographies and so on. When, when you're talking about bi biography and historiography in the first century, they overlapped quite a bit. And so you're not talking about a major shift in genre the way you would be if you're talking about biography and fiction or history and fiction. Ancient writers very carefully distinguished between history and what they called poetry, like epic poetry, like what you have in Homer, uh, what you have in the tragic um, mm -hmm. dramatists, mm -hmm and so on. They, they distinguished from that. In terms of novels, novels were not nearly as common as biographies, mm -hmm. but most novels were about fictitious characters. And when they were about historical characters, they were placed in the distant past, and they were not based on extensive research. So uh, we have a couple cases where you have, and, and these, uh, his, what we might call them historical novels or biographic novels, first of all, they're, they're a relatively rare form of novel. But secondly, where they, where they do exist, never within living memory of the person, they don't have as many points of comparison. I mean, like in the Gospels, you've got, Aramaic figures of speech, even though it's written in Greek, you've got uh, Galilean uh, towns and you know all sorts of things that are just mm -hmm. you wouldn't normally find in a novel. People don't don't go do research to to get all this information. I mean, today you can, but but back then they didn't. Um, and then with with the historical the historical novels, I mean. By the time you have biography 
in its form that you have it in the first century. You could have somebody tweak that the way that Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code, you know, he gives you markers of historicity in a, in a way that kind of, um, there's a word that I like to use that is not coming to me right now. Um, subvert isn't quite the best way, but that takes over the markers of a genre and uh, parodies, in a sense, the, mm-hmm. the, real, the real genre. But just because you have a parody, uh, Dan Brown does a parody of history, doesn't mean that we have to throw out all the history books, because parody means we can't trust in any historical claim. Normally, that's not, I mean, that's not the norm. That's the parody. So Philostratus's Life of Apollonius, I think, parodies the biographic form. But what you have, you have protobiography in the um, you know, back in classical Athens, it starts developing from uh, funeral orations, funeral eulogies, where once they start making those about a person who's still alive, it's a it's a praise speech. Or uh, under some of Aristotle's disciples, you have uh, uh, blame speeches where they'll attack somebody. Uh, you know, it's it's about a person particular person, and it's against them. By the time you get to Cornelius Nepos in the first century BC, uh, you have the kind of biography that prevails in the first century AD. So uh, Cornelius Nepos is is writing toward the end of the Roman Republic. Uh, You have that that form of biography prevailing pretty much into the early third century, where you have Diogenes Laertius. Diogenes Laertius, he's a stickler for mentioning his sources, but these are these are almost all old sources. But he's such a stickler for it. And we have a whole lot of knowledge of a lot of earlier writers because he he cites them. I don't know if anal retentive is the right word for it, but he's very, very detailed, very helpful to us today. Clearly, he's not making stuff up, uh, although some of the people he's citing clearly were making stuff up uh, or were depending on people who made stuff up. But, you know, this is stuff centuries earlier. Mm-hmm. So between those periods, we have the the apex of historiographic information-based Biography. You, you go from protobiography a few centuries earlier, uh, the late Roman Empire. You st- you start sliding into hagiography. Uh, not all late imperial bi- biographies are equally hagiography, but uh, that's that's the way it goes. So you have medieval lives of the saints. Eventually, those are those are those tend to be hagiography, mm-hmm. but they're they're not mm-hmm. written following the same rules or the same. Uh, rules isn't a good word, the same format as what you have in the early empire, um, especially, you know, you have it, uh, Plutarch, Suetonius, and Tacitus. We have a lot of surviving ones from the early second century. The the first century, we actually have some Jewish ones, uh, Philo's Life of Moses and Josephus's autobiography. Mm-hmm. You also have uh, Nicolaus's Life of Augustus, Nicolaus of Damascus. 
That one I don't trust as much because it's too contemporary. And, and ancient historians recognize the danger of too contemporary in this sense. It was, it was a biography of an emperor while the emperor was still alive. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you had to be really careful what you said then. Talk about bias. Uh, I mean, there, there is a bunch of information in that. At the same time, it's kind of like when um, Boleus Paterculus, writing in the early first century, you know, he says great things about Sejanus uh, or Sejanus, uh, who is the Praetorian prefect. Well, a few generations later, Tacitus just blasts Sejanus. There's nobody more wicked than Sejanus. But um, Valeus Paterculus was under the authority of Sejanus. If he wrote anything bad about Sejanus, he was dead meat. So uh, it does help to have a little bit of historical distance, mm-hmm. but not so much that you're beyond living memory. Mm-hmm. Hello, this is Andy Bannister, the director of the Solas Center for Public Christianity, and I'm delighted to endorse and uh, recommend the Ministry of Deeper Waters Apologetics. I've been hugely impressed watching the work that Nick has done over the years, building up the website and the podcast, the quality of the guests that he gets onto there. And I love the way that uh, the ministry challenges and encourages both Christians and those who don't have a Christian faith to really think through the claims of the gospel. I'm also impressed by just how Christ-centered Nick is and all that he does. It's his desire to see people encounter Jesus Christ and the life-transforming truth of the gospel. So uh, more strength to them. It's been a privilege to know Nick over the years, and I hope Deeper Waters goes from strength to strength. And if you haven't yet discovered it, check out the website, deeperwatersapologetics.com for yourself. Back in mind, when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, everything we do is supported by listeners like you. And if you'd like to support us, go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link there. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click on that link, you'll get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You go on the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation, and then you get in touch with me, or Allie, or Mike, or Debbie, and say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will give that donation. It will be tax deductible. And if you uh, <clears throat> don't want to do that, you can also go and buy some of the ebooks I've written. I'm still working on finishing my response to Dawkins' Outgrowing God. But you can also buy my book, uh, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christians. Uh, some that I've co-written. Two books on inerrancy, Defining and Contextualizing Inerrancy. Groundless, a response to Dan Barker, who I debated back in March of this year, 2019. Um, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions, and, of course, the Mention of Ours Project. And if you can't do any of this, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I really like to see it. And it means so much. Now, Dr. Kino, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um... Although uh, if I ever if I ever could go full time into writing and not teaching, but see, I love teaching, so I'm a full time professor, and uh, no, so not me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like I like World Vision, Compassion International. Um, there are a lot of 
uh, a theological book network that provides uh, theological libraries in the majority world with with resources. Um, there's a lot of good uh, Salvation Army, um, which is actually an evangelical uh, denomination, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, there are a lot of a lot of uh, groups that are doing a lot of good work around the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's get back to talking about gospels, and um, um, I, I think what I want to ask is, what about memorization? I mean. These Gospels were written decades later. How can we trust the memory is reliable? Mm-hmm. I just, um, just today, I checked, I checked actually Facebook to, to, um, to see if you had contacted me there. And when I went in to check it, uh, I, I had a message from somebody because I posted uh, some pictures of me going back to when I was an undergraduate. Actually, uh, it was one of my sophomore pictures. No, it was, my, it was a freshman picture because I didn't have a beard yet. Uh, we weren't allowed to grow beards that year, but next year we were allowed, so I had a big beard, a, a bushy beard my second year. But the, uh, uh, the, the person you know, posted a comment. He, he was a friend of mine from back then, and I mentioned... Uh, a particular day when we both had this particular, we, we had a shared experience. And he said, oh, you remember that? You know, so we were both reminiscing about this event, which happened, it would have been in spring of 1979. So that would be what? 40 years ago. You're good with math. Mm-hmm. Yes, 40 years mm-hmm. ago. Uh, I, I would be better with it if, that century marker hadn't come in between, but yeah. So, um, can memory preserve things like that? I was at a uh, my my 40th high school reunion this uh, about a year ago, and that would make sense. And so, uh, somebody there named Cindy, she said, "Oh, I remember when in third grade." You uh, you were humming the tune to Gilligan's Island, and the teacher said, "Okay, if you're going to hum it, why don't you get up and sing it in front of the whole class?" <clears throat> and she said, "You got up and sang it in front of the whole class, and you didn't miss a single word." She said, "I still remember that to this day. I've told my husband about it, and he he nodded. Yeah, I remember. She's told me about that. Now that was forty years ago, and I remember the incident also. I'm sure you uh, did. Although I remember." Because it was very embarrassing. I don't actually remember the, I mean, I remember the tune. I don't actually remember most of the words of the song now. But um, apparently I did then. But I haven't been practicing it for 40 years. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there, there are things that, that we will remember for a long time uh, because they were particularly traumatic or partic- that one, particularly emotional or whatever else. Now, what kinds of things would we remember? In the case of disciples, their job as disciples, they were trained to repeat back what their teacher taught them. That is not only the case. Some people say, well, you know, that, that's only if, there's, if they're literate. But that's not true. <laughs> disciples weren't all literate. And uh, a lot of instruction was oral. A lot of memorization was oral. So 
you had, uh, in terms of the development of memory, if you had any basic education at all, that was, you know, it, it emphasized memorization. You'd emphasize, you, you would memorize the sayings of famous teachers. So, you know, memorization was pretty common. At a more advanced level, the, you know, especially the tertiary level of discipleship, which normally was in the mid-teens, probably most of Jesus' disciples were in their teens, is, is my guess. In contrast to the movies, I'm waiting for them to make a movie with Jesus' disciples who were in their, most of them in their teens. Peter was maybe early 20s, but um, in any case, uh, I'm glad at least they're, they're, they're getting away from Jesus being uh, blonde and blue-eyed. And by, by the way, I do have blue eyes. My wife likes my blue eyes, so I'm not against blue eyes, but you know, it just doesn't work for, for uh, likely a Judean in the, in the first century. It's not impossible that his eyes were blue, but he certainly wouldn't have looked like, like me, uh, e- even if I were back when I was just 30 years old. So, also um, in terms of in terms of memory, they would they would memorize sayings. Uh, people who were illiterate also would would sit around and, and tell stories. They'd pass on family stories. Uh, they'd pass on stories from the culture. There were bards who were looked down on by the intellectuals as, as uncritical, but these bards could repeat back from memory all of Homer, the Iliad, and the Odyssey. And you, you had um, orators. Now, orators, again, we're going back to literate people. These are people who were trained in memory techniques, who, who would give speeches that could be as much as hours in length, and they would do them entirely from memory. Uh, I'm going from memory now, but it's because you're asking me good questions, and also I'm following my train of thought, which unfortunately I could, uh, yeah, if if you lose your train of thought, uh, if you don't have a one-track mind, you may lose your mind, right? But anyway, no, uh, I, I'm, I tend to go off on tangents. I'm sorry about that. I'm ADHD, so... Uh, I have plenty of material, but good orators wouldn't be ADHD. They would be focused. They would stay on on their their point, and they would reiterate it and illustrate it in all sorts of ways. And they had special ways to remember that. Now, in the case of disciples, sometimes in Greek schools there were people who went from being Illiterate farmers, this is not against farmers, by the way, uh, you can be a perfectly literate farmer, but back then in, in Greece, most of the farmers were not literate, uh, but they, you know, some of them actually knew quite a lot from oral memory, but, uh, and we do have examples of that from antiquity with people who had memorized large portions of Homer. You, you had uh, them coming and becoming disciples of teachers, even though they didn't know how to read. But they would, they would be in these schools where they would learn orally. And they would just repeat back the next day what they heard the day before. They would recite it. They would repeat it. Uh, in, in current uh, psychological studies of memory, uh, 
we call it spaced repetition uh, and and uh, space practice and uh, and so on. In in the case of Judea, there are debates about how much literacy there was there in terms of reading and writing literacy. Um, but Josephus says that Jewish people were able to read the scriptures. Whether that's true or not, he also speaks of, of them memorizing the scriptures. Certainly the gospel writers, even though they're writing to probably diaspora audiences where uh, not everybody actually had access to, to scrolls in their house churches, he, they, they, they tend to take for granted that people knew a lot of scripture. They must have learned a lot of this orally. Uh, Paul, Paul does the same thing. Of course, he's writing to urban congregations, but uh, where, where the level of literacy was higher, at least among men. But uh, in any case, in terms of what we do know, the, the limited evidence we do have, people could learn a lot orally. In fact, our evidence from Judea suggests more oral learning than what you have in, in Greek circles. Now, this oral learning was not focused on uh, verbatim. Uh, sometimes it would be with, with aphorisms, with proverbs, which, which is true of a lot of Jesus' sayings. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. Oh, I just heard a, a beep. So did I. Uh, so you, you were there for all of that? Yes. Okay. All right. Um, so it, it wasn't a matter of memorizing things word for word. And so it's not surprising from one gospel to another, uh, like in the case of uh, parables, the wording often differs. But that should make sense to us. I mean, if if I were telling my kids the story of Goldilocks, which I don't think I've ever actually, maybe I've, maybe I told my son that once, but, uh, but if I were telling my kids the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, uh, actually I told them the story of Chronicles of Narnia. And, uh, and, but anyway, if I were telling them the stories of Goldilocks and the three bears, I wouldn't think that the next time I told the story, if I used somewhat different wording, they'd say, no, no, you used different wording the first time. I don't remember what wording I used. It's like one time I, I had a, a student, as I was giving the exam, you know, I'd, I'd given the uh, students study questions, and the study questions were the same as the study questions from the previous year, but I didn't pay attention to the previous year in terms of which of those study questions would actually be on the final. So uh, on the final exam, one of the students looked up in horror and he said, wait, these aren't the questions you gave last year. And I said, well, I didn't pay any attention to which questions I asked last year. And he said, can I, can I take an incomplete? Uh, <clears throat> so obviously he didn't practice memorization very much at that point. But we don't always pay attention to the exact wording that we use. And also in terms of, of memory, how much do we remember? We definitely don't remember everything. And that's easily illustrated. In fact, I've already illustrated it in my own case. But it's easily illustrated. I mean, you ask somebody, what did you have for lunch a year ago? 
this week on Tuesday, <laughs> chances are they won't be able to tell you unless they eat the same thing every day or it was a really, really special day for them, like maybe their birthday and they had some cake or something. So there, there's all sorts of things we don't remember. We certainly don't remember every conversation we've ever had or every conversation probably we had in the last week or two, unless we're you know, living in somewhat isolated setting. So most things that happen to us, we don't remember. And that's good because our brains would be overloaded. It's good our brains aren't built that way. But we remember a lot that's significant to us. Of things that we consider significant now, studies show that after a year, we'll have forgotten, we'll have forgotten some of them. Uh, after five years, things that we consider significant, we'll have forgotten like maybe half of them. But the, the forgetting curve seems to slow down after five years, so that after a few decades after that, you'll still remember a lot of those. I think of people that I went to school with, the people I wasn't close to, I forgot most of them. And I'm really embarrassed by that. But anyway, I forgot most of them. The people that I was close to, I, I see them again, and it's like, it's like we just pick up where we left off yesterday. Now, you know, as time goes on, I am forgetting more. But, um, yeah. Uh, so in terms of what they would have remembered, disciples, their job was to pass on what their teacher taught them. Because of that, they they practiced repeating that stuff. Now, let's say Jesus' disciples were unlike all other disciples in antiquity, which really is against historical method. Scholars should not go that route normally because if you're going to say, okay, well, if we're going to use comparisons, if we're going to use analogies from antiquity, you know, here's what we would find. But... We think Jesus' disciples couldn't have been like that because we can't imagine that Jesus ever did stuff like this or said stuff like this. If we're going to take that route, still, Jesus' disciples would have had to have recalled a lot of things anyway because who's in charge of the movement after Jesus leaves? Jesus leaves them in charge of the movement. People are going to be asking them questions about Jesus. And so they're going to be repeating these things over and over again. Now, the more you repeat it, the more it's going to become, uh, it's going to assume a certain pattern in the retelling. So if I, uh, like some of the stuff I'm telling you now, I can, I can tell it to you off the top of my head, mainly because I've been through it so many times. I talk about it in the classroom. My, my New Testament survey course, I haven't tried this in recent years but because uh, I'm kind of dependent on PowerPoint now, but in my New Testament survey course for, for beginning uh, master students, I, uh, I've taught it so many times, I probably could teach it without notes. The only danger is that I would go off on tangents like I'm doing now, <laughs> periodically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th there's, there's plenty that they would remember. Uh, I could give you some examples of extraordinary memory from antiquity. 
these aren't average, but I could give you just some examples for your entertainment if you want, but but you probably have other questions. Yeah, we've only got about 20 minutes or so left here. You know, this kind of question is related to it, though. I mean, how, how, how does this work with oral tradition? Because, you know, Bart Ehrman will go to people and say, well, you know, one person hears the story of Jesus and they go and tell their brother who goes and tells his uncle who goes into to another town and tells a merchant who goes and tells his his wife on and on. It, it's just like the telephone game, and you know the telephone game isn't really that reliable. So, why should we trust oral tradition? Yeah, yeah. Well, what Bart describes does happen. It's uh, called rumor transmission. We have plenty of examples of that in antiquity. However, it's very different from schools passing on information. And it's usually those rumors get shot down. I mean, at least what we see in antiquity is usually they don't last very long. They, they, they get overrun. Now today we've got social media to propagate them and keep them, keep them alive. But um, in antiquity, you know, there's a, uh, the, 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 the soldiers are, are coming from the enemy. They're going to overrun our city. And then you find out that's ah, not true. My wife could give you illustrations of that from the war that she was uh, a refugee in, in her home country of Congo. But a rumor transmission is under very different conditions than a community passing on its own story and the origins of its story. That generally takes shape over over time. And at the beginning, it normally depends on the witnesses. So, uh, but without going into oral tradition, um, well, let me go into oral tradition. Oral tradition, after after a few generations, what you often have, the, the storyline gets more compact. Uh, you can retell it with variations, but but the core of it tends to stay the same. And sometimes in some civilizations, there's evidence that it is it has persisted for centuries or even millennia. Not always, because it only takes one generation to mess it up. Uh, any oral traditions we have now would easily get messed up in our generation because we're not retelling our parents' stories so much. We're, um, yeah. I, I had a neighbor, Anna Gulick, who passed away at the age of 96. And she says that before TV, before radio, and before air conditioning, people would sit out on their front porch and pass on stories. And so the children would learn over and over again the stories of their grandparents and their great-grandparents, you know, significant in- incidents from their lives. She told me stories going back to the 1700s. And I was able to check them. Uh, well, I was able to check some of them. I couldn't check all of them. But some of them, there are historical records that she didn't know about. Um, and I was able to go back and check them and confirm most of what she said. There was something in the 1700s where she had like a, a last name slightly confused. But I mean, that's pretty good for a couple hundred years. So that's oral tradition. Um, it can be very accurate isn't always, but it can be. In terms of oral history, we depend on a lot of stuff for oral history. Uh, and that's what you had to depend on before you had um, 
before you had the kind of electronic stuff we have today, before you had photographs and 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 so on. And most of our knowledge of history before this modern uh, or postmodern period, most of our knowledge of history depends on that. Now, in terms of the telephone game, a number of memory specialists have commented on that and have have dismissed it. They said that's not the conditions under which the teachings of Jesus or the stories about Jesus were transmitted. And some of these experts, um, some of them are experts that are actually cited by Bart Ehrman. I think it's interesting. I don't know. Does he still cite the telephone game? Cause yep, he does. In his, mm-hmm. in his book on memory, he seemed to avoid it. Uh, but in any case, as far as I know, he's still using it. But Yeah. Barry, Barry Schwartz, Schwartz, whom he cites quite a bit in his book, actually Barry Schwartz talks, you know, social memory of Abraham Lincoln, how Lincoln has been used differently by each generation to speak to their own generation, the needs of their generation. But Barry Schwartz also emphasizes that the core stays the same. The, the information, well, most of the information stays the same. I mean, there are certain things that were added along the way uh, with Washington and the cherry tree that was that was made up later. But you also have Washington, uh, his relationship with Braddock, uh, certain battles at certain times. There's no question about most of the major events in George Washington's life that we have in histories, um, especially that go back to the earliest period. So Barry Schwartz dismisses that, that kind of approach, and so so do a lot of other memory specialists. Um, now, now, Bart is right where he cites a number of people about the frailties of memory. But psychological memory, when you test it, I mean, these tests are designed to see what it takes to trip you up. So, for example, you have a list of things, pillow, sleep, bed, and and then uh, they, they ask you to repeat the list. Or they ask you if it's the same list later on and they include the word uh, bed sheet or something. And you say yes. It, that's that that was there. I remember that. Well, you don't remember that. Uh, that shows a frailty of verbatim memory. But if you said instead of bed sheet, you said um, skunk, you probably would say, I don't remember that, because verbatim memory is fleeting unless you practice it over and over again. But the memory for the core, the memory for the gist actually is more likely to persist. And and so you test a person on that, and no, uh, uh, skunk wasn't there. And psychological memory shows the frailties, shows the limitations of memory, and those limitations are real. But that's why I was pointing out the other side of memory. Jesus' disciples wouldn't have remembered everything he said, but they certainly would have remembered enough to fill a couple Gospels. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're kind of starting here in the time of, of wrapping things up. In fact, I, I guess I could go ahead and, and now, because um, I don't think there's enough time to get into another question, really. Okay, um, do you have a, a blog, website, and email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Um, 
it's hard to get in touch with me because there, there are some days when I actually get five endorsement requests for books in a single day. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I have a public email address at, at Asbury Seminary, but I can't, I can't answer everything. I, once in a while I can answer something, but I just, I can't keep up. I don't have a secretary or anything. I'd have to stop writing books if I just answered emails, but, um, so no offense to anybody, but, um, you, you can follow me on Facebook. Uh, I'd say you could friend me on Facebook, but it's already, it's already full, but there's the, the book page and you can, you can like that, uh, and follow me there. You can also uh, go to craigkeener.com, so long as you spell Craig Keener correctly, um, okay. C-R-A-I-G-K-E-E-N-E-R, mm-hmm. uh, like, like the word Keener, mm-hmm. uh, craigkeener.com. Uh, I have a blog, blog posts there, uh, and you can actually use the pull-down menu, and you can get Bible studies on a whole lot of different uh, places in the Bible. Uh, I've done more on some books of the Bible than others, but lo- there are hundreds of, of uh, Bible studies there that you can look at. You also uh, you also can look at um, videos. I've got at least 60 hours worth of, of videos, um, video links. On, under the free resources, on the, on the top menu, there's a, a place called free resources. You can go there and get links to the, the videos. Also, a free book on Bible interpretation. I can't give away most of my books free. They're owned by my publishers, and my publishers, to stay in business, have to charge money, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I can at least give away some things free, and some of the things are in multiple. Uh, the, the interpretation manual has been translated into several different languages, so uh, you may find your language there. If not, feel free to... <laughs> translated but anyway right now as of time this recording on amazon via kin the book is crystal biography the hardcover is 37.99 the kinder is 36.09 do you have any final words to actually for our audience today i love jesus he's worth loving he's worth everything and the bible Mm -hmm. The Bible is so fun, especially when you can dig into it. Um, mm. And when you can understand it in its own context, that really helps too. Um, that's why I did the Bible background commentary. And also John Walton and I did the cultural backgrounds study Bible. It's in the mm. NIV, the NRSV, and I wish mm. it were in the NASV too, but it's also in uh, uh, the New King James. So uh, it gives notes. Mm. Uh, I did most of the New Testament notes. So it gives uh, some cultural background that helps you understand the text better. But the biggest thing is just reading it, reading the the Bible uh, over and over until you get the idea of how they wrote and and what they were communicating. Yeah, that's that's it. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Thanks so much, Nick. It's great to be with you. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Albany Rose on talking about abortion. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. And I have from a virgin birth.